Well, we've come to the main message portion of our service now, so I hope you have your Bible with you, and we'll get it out and start to study. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the Bibles that you've provided for us, and Lord, we know that the Holy Spirit makes the connection. He worked during the preparation of the sermon. He works on the delivery of the sermon. He works on the audience hearing the sermon, and he causes it all to make sense and causes us all to learn and to grow closer to you, Father. So let the Holy Spirit do his work this morning, and uh, thank you for these words, Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. We'll start off this morning in John chapter 14. And I'd like to uh, begin with verse 9. This is something that Jesus said before his departure from the earth. We know that he came down to this earth as a human being. He lived uh, a life of approximately 33 years. Uh, and then the time had come for him to depart shortly after his crucifixion and resurrection. And he was encouraging the apostles with these words. Uh, Philip had asked him to show us the Father, and uh, he'd be satisfied. Verse 9 of John 14, Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father? and that the Father is in me. So Jesus introduces a concept that we like to call perichoresis, or a mutual indwelling. See, our relationship with God is not the same as our relationship with our relatives and our friends here on this earth. You know, uh, I'm friends with Eddie, but you know what, Eddie's over there and I'm over here. We're, we're kind of separate. We're close, but we're separate. The relationship with God within the Trinity is that they actually dwell within each other. The Father is in the Son. The Son is in the Father. The Spirit is in the Father. The Spirit is in the Son, and, and so forth. It's, it's a relationship that goes beyond what we have as physical human beings. It's deeper it's, it's more involved, it's a, it's a mutual indwelling that I'm sure we don't fully understand, but yet Jesus says that's the way it is. I'm in the Father, the Father's in me. The words I say to you are, are not just my own, rather it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Now this is a, an important concept to understand because our relationship with God is very similar. God talks about how he dwells in us. Verse 11, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. So we live in an age now when greater things are being accomplished in the name of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus went to, to be with the Father again. And when he went to be with the Father, he sent the Holy Spirit. Now, why did Jesus have to depart? Well, his 
stage of his relationship with us had come to an end. He came to this earth to die for us. But you know what? When Jesus walked the earth, he was somewhat limited because he was there and the apostles were here. You know, if you wanted to see Jesus, you had to go to the next town or, or find him wherever he is. But now that Jesus departed, he is available to all people through the Holy Spirit. Amen. He's no longer limited. So that's why Jesus said greater things are going to be accomplished because it wasn't Jesus as one man walking around from town to town. Now, through the Holy Spirit, Jesus is active in each of our lives. So more can be accomplished. Jesus is made available to more people because he's dwelling in each of us. We represent Jesus. We take him, in a sense, wherever we go. He's dwelling in us. So you know what? Jesus is now in your neighborhood. He's now in your household because he dwells in you, and you make him available to everybody you come in contact with. So that's why Jesus says, greater things will be accomplished because he's going to be with the Father and he's going to send us the Holy Spirit. So he says here again in verse 12, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I'm going to be with the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. So now verse 15, if you love me, you will obey what I command and I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor. So up to this point, Jesus has been their counselor, but now that he's departing, he's going to send another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you so when does the holy spirit actually come to be in us well when we accept jesus as our savior when we're when we're baptized the holy spirit even though he may have been working with us over a period of years now you have given him permission to actually enter into you. He will be in you at that point. And that's something, like I said, we kind of take for granted and we might forget about from time to time. But the Holy Spirit dwells in us. He is active in us every day. He is the one who is nudging us in the right direction. He is the one who plays the part of our conscience. You know, when we do something wrong, he kind of weighs on our mind thinking, you know, you did something wrong, you need to go and fix that. You said those nasty comments to that person. You, as a son of God, need to go now and apologize to that person. You need to repent to God for what you've done, and you need to apologize to that person. I don't know about you, but countless times in my marriage, when I do dumb things or hurtful things, he is there very quickly to weigh on my mind and say, hey, you upset your wife, you hurt her, you need to go back now and you need to fix that. That's the Holy Spirit doing those sorts of things. Amen. People call that a conscience because they don't understand the Holy Spirit. Believe me, it's the Holy Spirit in you that is working with you. 
you know, when you see a need and somebody's struggling, he is there to nudge you and say, hey, Christian, go help that person. You know, you have the ability, you have the strength to do that. Now get your mind off yourself and get your mind on others and go help that person or go donate toward that cause or whatever it may be. That is the Holy Spirit in you. He says in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And of course, that's through the Holy Spirit. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Perichoresis, mutual indwelling. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but the other Judas said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So it's not just Jesus, it's not just the Holy Spirit, but this verse seems to be saying that even God the Father dwells in us. The Trinity. We represent the Trinity wherever we go. We're taking God with us, and we have a responsibility to that too. So those are powerful scriptures. Powerful scriptures. Jesus prophesied that the Holy Spirit would be sent, and on the day of Pentecost, indeed, he was sent. Not just to the church as a whole, but to individual Christians. And he has made his dwelling place with us. Let's turn now to Acts chapter 2 and read the actual account of what happened here. Now, at this point in time, it says in Acts 2 verse 1, when the day of Pentecost came. Now, Pentecost was also known as the Feast of First Fruits. It was the Feast of Ingathering. It was a time in ancient Israel when Jews would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem because that's where all of the celebration and the worship took place. Uh, they would come to participate in that. Uh, the Feast of First Fruits had to do with a special ceremony that took place at the temple where they would take the first of the spring harvest and offer it up to God. And it was only at that point that farmers across the land could start to harvest their crop and start to eat of uh, the fruit of that harvest. So it was a very crucial ceremony that took place. And it was arrived at by counting days. And you would count 50 days. That's the origin of the term Pentecost. You see that, that uh, prefix pent, you know, the Pentagon in Washington is a building that has five sides. So pent means five or 50 in this case. So they would count 50 days to arrive at this celebration, the Feast of First Fruits, uh, the Feast of Ingathering or Pentecost as it's called here. So when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, speaking of the disciples. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. 
they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Now, it's interesting, <clears throat> when you study the Holy Spirit, of course, the Holy Spirit is invisible. You can't see him at work, even though he is present with us in this room right now. You can't see him, but throughout the Bible, he is described with different symbols. Now, here he's described as tongues of fire. Why tongues of fire? Well, as we just heard uh, Greg Williams say, uh, the apostles were about to be given the power to preach the gospel using their tongues, speaking in different languages. So in this case, you know, fire is symbolic of power, God's power. A lot of times when it talks about the judgment and the return of Jesus Christ, it talks about fire. Uh, he's coming with flames of fire. So fire means power. Fire can mean judgment. So here the Holy Spirit, as he blesses the disciples with this power to preach the gospel, it is symbolized by fire. So their tongues, the tongues that they speak the gospel with, are going to be uh, made powerful by God. That's what the Holy Spirit is going to do. And the wind, of course, too, is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Remember when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus, he said, the, the Spirit is like the wind. It blows where it wants to. You can't see it coming, or you can see the effects of it, but you can't see the wind itself. Meaning that the Holy Spirit, you know, he works his agenda, and you don't always know what he's going to do, or who he's going to empower, or who he's going to convert, or who he's going to bring to the point of repentance. You can't predict it. The Holy Spirit works as he will. Another uh, symbol of the Holy Spirit, remember when Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit came down in the form of a, thank you, a dove. What does that mean? Well, you know, you take it all the way back to uh, the days of Noah. Remember when Noah and his family were on the ark for 40 days and uh, the, they were wondering if the flood water was going to start receding. So what did they do? Well, they sent out a raven and that never came back. But then they sent out a dove, and the dove returned with an olive branch, signifying that, yes, the water had receded enough that plants and trees were starting to, to show and to, and to uh, appear through the water. So in that sense, the dove was a sense of peace and encouragement for uh, Noah and his family, showing that the time of, of judgment had come to an end, and now they could return to land. And to this day, you know, you see around the world, a, a, a dove with an olive branch in its beak is a sign of peace. And the Holy Spirit brings peace to each of our lives and uh, the peace that we really appreciate. So many symbols of the Holy Spirit, all powerful and meaningful. But in this case, it's tongues of fire, talking about the power that was about to be unleashed with the preaching of the gospel. It goes on to say here, verse 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. So in Jerusalem at this time, since so many pilgrims had come to celebrate uh, the feast of first fruits from many different countries, they didn't all speak the same language. So there was a need now for the Holy Spirit to perform a miracle for these men and women to stand up 
and to begin to preach the gospel and everybody from the foreign languages were able to hear it and understand it in their own language, wherever they came from. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, and because each one heard them speaking in his own language, utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. So it wasn't just a matter of our own language, but it was also a matter of our own dialect, <laughs> our own accents. It was that personal, a miracle. You know, in, uh, in America here, if a person from Boston is speaking to a person from Alabama, there might be some difficulty in understanding what they're saying because we all have accents depending on what part of the country we're from. You know, when I first moved to this area, I couldn't really understand people from Pittsburgh all the time because they have such a, an accent, accent that they don't even realize. Uh, but the Holy Spirit sorted it all out in such a way that not only did you hear these Galileans as they were speaking their native language, you heard it in your native language, and even in your particular accent, if you were from the north or south portion of your particular country, that's how precise it was as far as a miracle is concerned. Verse 12, amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven and raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And he quotes the prophecy from Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So he takes it from that particular point right up to the end when Jesus eventually returns. And notice, I just want to pause and notice verse 21. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, what does that mean, to call on the name of the Lord? Well, you call on the name of the Lord when you come to realize that you're a sinner, that you need a savior, and you recognize and accept Jesus as that savior who can forgive your sins and give you eternal life. That's what it means to call. It's not just, hey, Jesus. No, it's to call on his name with an understanding of who he is and what he has done on your behalf. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. And that's what is required for you to be saved. So that's the message, okay? 
Men of Israel, verse 22, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So this is the gospel he's preaching. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So verse 29, brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day, but he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. That would be Jesus. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. So this is the gospel being preached. The whole story of Jesus being sent to this earth to die for our sins and now the Holy Spirit being sent so that we could understand. Verse 36, therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And now, the, since the Holy Spirit is here, it makes sense to everybody. It says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Now, you know, a lot of people can hear the gospel and think nothing of it or think, well, that's a fairy tale or, or that's, that's boulder dash. But once the Holy Spirit is on the scene working with you, you hear the gospel and you're emotionally cut to the heart you realize, yeah, I am a sinner. And yeah, this, this innocent man died because of me and my sins. So Peter tells them, verse 38, Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Wow. That shows you what can happen when the Holy Spirit is there and working hard. And that's exactly what happened. Think through Jesus' three and a half year earthly ministry, what was the end result of that? Well, who showed up on this day to gather with all of the believers? It says there were 120 people. That was it. So now, since the Holy Spirit has been given, with one sermon, 3,000 people give their lives to the Lord. Jesus said, greater things will be accomplished once I go to the Father and send the Holy Spirit. So this is a perfect example, not that the Holy Spirit is greater than Jesus, no, he's just working in a different way. He's making Jesus available to more people because it's the Holy Spirit work. And it goes on to describe this, this first church, okay, verse 47, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So what a beautiful picture. The Holy Spirit, upon his arrival, he arrives with power, he inspires, 
He works on people's minds and hearts, and he does it very effectively. And you know what? He has done this same thing for all of us. We here are people who have been affected by the Holy Spirit in a powerful way. We understand the things that we understand about God because the Holy Spirit has taught us. But the Holy Spirit really can't teach you unless you surrender first to Jesus Christ. He leads you to the point of repentance. You know, he works on your mind and on your conscience. He's telling you that you're a sinner and that you need help. But, you know, he only goes so far. He can't force you to be baptized. He leads you to the brink of baptism, and then he backs off and waits for you to make the decision. You have to decide. You have to make the commitment. But then once you make that commitment, you are the one held responsible for what you've promised. He holds you accountable for what you've said to God. You know, if you claim Jesus as your Savior, there's no going back. There's no changing your mind. It's a lifelong commitment that you make, and you signify that with your baptism. Turn with me now to John chapter 15. There's one thing that I want you to notice here. The Holy Spirit kind of does his work behind the scenes. Uh, we don't talk a whole lot about praising the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit's job is to point us to Jesus Christ. He points all people to Jesus. He doesn't point people to himself. He puts the spotlight on Jesus Christ. And because of that, the Holy Spirit is always kind of working behind the scenes. <clears throat> In John chapter 15 and verse 26, Jesus says this, when the counselor comes, that's the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. So the Holy Spirit really doesn't have any pride. He doesn't draw people to himself. He works behind the scenes to point people to Jesus. And sure enough, you know, the sermon that we just read about given by Peter on the day of Pentecost, Peter didn't talk about the Holy Spirit. Who did Peter talk about? Jesus. That's how the Holy Spirit works. He doesn't draw attention to himself. His job is to draw attention to Jesus. And Jesus is the one who leads us to the Father. So you see how the Trinity works. The Holy Spirit points us to Jesus, and Jesus takes us to the Father. He opens the door for us to have a relationship directly with the Father. So again, he says, When the Counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you must also testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. So we all have a responsibility when it comes to the gospel. The gospel isn't just something that's preached at church. The gospel is something that we live in our daily lives. Amen. Our lives must be different than the, the lives of the people around us in this world. Now, we're not drawing attention to ourselves. Now, some people will take it that way, and they'll say that, uh, you know, you're, you're a holier person somehow, uh, whether they call it holier than thou or something like that, and they'll criticize us as if we're boasting because we stand up for God. 
we try to do the right thing. You know, a lot of times we'll be persecuted for that and people will criticize us because we appear to be holier, quote unquote, than everybody else. No, we're just trying to be more like Jesus. So we shouldn't boast about ourselves. We shouldn't, uh, you know, compare ourselves to others. We should humbly just try to live the way that we're supposed to live, the, Holy, the way that the Holy Spirit is leading us to live. How people take that, that's going to be up to them. But there will be some people who will see your good example and will be attracted to it. Now, our job is not to point people to ourselves, it's to point people to Jesus Christ, just like the Holy Spirit does. So get out there and live the kind of life that you've been called to live. Be sensitive to the lead of the Holy Spirit. When he corrects you, be corrected. When he leads you to do good works, go ahead and do those good works. We know that all the glory goes to God. It doesn't go to ourselves. But our lives must be different in many respects. Not in a judgmental way, not in a holier-than-thou way, but in a humble way. God is working through each of us to live the life that we've been called to live. That's what Jesus meant when he said, if you obey my commands. That's not taking us back necessarily to the, the Ten Commandments of the Old Testament. It's living the kind of life based on what Jesus told us, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. So some people will notice your example and they will be convicted themselves by it. They'll say, you know, I've convinced myself over the years that nobody can live this way. But you know what? I see a person now who's living this way and I see that it is possible. It is possible. So that's how we're all to respond to our calling. That's how we're all to respond to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And there's never a time when the Holy Spirit leaves you. The Holy Spirit is even with you when you sin. And you say, is that possible? Well, yes, it is possible. The Holy Spirit doesn't partake in our sins. He is the one pulling you in the right direction while the world is pulling you in the wrong direction. So the Holy Spirit never departs from us. He doesn't leave us or forsake us. Jesus promised that himself, that that would never happen. God is very patient. God is very diligent. He will continue a work in you until the end. I like that the scripture in... Uh, I can find that... What is that, Philippians? Philippians 1, verse 6. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul said that to give us confidence because we have our doubts. We think, well, you know, sometimes the Holy Spirit is with us, and sometimes the Holy Spirit leaves us. No, that's not true. That doesn't happen. The Holy Spirit is committed to each of us. And he will keep doing his work of pulling you in the right direction, of guiding you as to how you should live. He, he will do that until it's all said and done at the return of Christ Jesus. And you know what? We're going to have good days 
And sometimes we're going to have bad days as Christians. The Holy Spirit never departs from us. He continues to do his work diligently. But we need to be sensitive to the lead of the Holy Spirit. We need to seek his help uh, every day. You know, we talked many times about starting the day in the right way. Instead of getting caught up immediately in all the cares and the worries of the day and your schedule for work and all the, the, uh, the chores that you have to do, start the day seeking the lead of the Holy Spirit. Just say, God, thank you for another day. I don't know what you've got planned for me today, but I want to be sensitive to the lead uh, of, of whatever you want me to do today. Just make me aware, give me the strength to do it, and he says, you know what, I've given you my spirit. The spirit will lead you today. Just be aware, be sensitive to it, and then follow it. If the Holy Spirit is going to convict you today, be convicted. If the Holy Spirit is going to guide you today and direct you today, be guided and directed. The Holy Spirit is a wonderful gift that God has given us. You know, he takes the place of the law Jewish tradition says that the Ten Commandments were given on Mount Sinai on the day of Pentecost, on the day of first fruits. That's what Jewish tradition says. And I think it's appropriate because as the new covenant began, as Jesus died and then rose from the dead and ascended up to heaven, God has given us a new guide. No longer do we look at tablets of stone with God's words carved on it. Remember when Jeremiah predicted that the law is going to be in our hearts. And that's what the Holy Spirit brings into us. The very law of God and the guidance for how we're to live now has been brought into us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So when we want to know how we should live on a given day and in a given situation, we don't have to look for tablets of stone to see what God carved in there. All we have to do is respond to the Holy Spirit. He gives us the direction and he gives us the strength to live the way that we should. The Old Testament law failed. It wasn't a failure of the law, it was a failure of the people. So what God prophesied that he would do is he would take his law, his intention and direction for us and put it right in our heart. And that's what the Holy Spirit has brought to us. So just respond to his lead. Respond to his direction. Don't ever think that he's not at work. He's at work 24 hours a day, seven days a week in each of our lives. And he'll never leave us or forsake us. Thank God for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for sending us the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, uh, let us never ignore you or take you for granted, you have done such wonderful things in each of our lives. You have taught us here today. Thank you for that. So as we go about our daily routine, Lord, we just pray that the Holy Spirit come to our lives with fire, with power, and let him renew his efforts in each of us, and let us become more responsive to what he's trying to do for us. Because it's his goal to make us people that are truly pleasing to you, Father. We want our lives to change. We've come here to learn to change. And we know that it's not just by our efforts, but it's by the power of the Holy Spirit, a power that we have all received. So thank you once again, Lord, for this precious gift. 
And we just pray that it can be more effective in our lives and we could be more responsive to it. Thank you, Lord. All praise, honor, and glory to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.